I'm Beth Grizzoli here at Notre Dame's International Security Center, and the fall equinox has arrived. So we're trying to squeak in our final episode of our summer series podcast, Just in Under the Wire. Today we talk with Joe Parent. He's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame, who studies how shifts in power affect cooperation. And you have a new book, well, it's forthcoming with Paul McDonald, and it's called Twilight of the Titans which is a title I love, and, and I anticipate Hollywood may even wanting to make a film of this book someday. But in this book, you examine the changing powers of the United States and China, and you discuss the concept of retrenchment as a wise strategy when necessary. So we'll get back to that, but let's start out with some general terms. Um, you, you study shifts in power. In your assessment, how much is the U.S. in decline, and how do you even measure this? Thanks, Beth. It's great to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, our book on decline tries to measure decline in terms of economic decline. So we look at relative great power um, GDP. So you're only powerful as powerful as other great powers, and you look at your share of great power GDP. So how does this decline, um, and it's been a slow decline, um, how does this affect domestic politics? Um, it depends on your rate of decline. So if the United States starts declining more quickly, you expect different policies to be used. And one of the useful things, I think, of our project is that it puts American decline in historical context. So relative to other states, um, the United States is in a low to medium decline. We are not in a fast decline relative to other declining states who have changed our ankle since 1870 when we have good data. Um, and so states that are declining in a slow to moderate fashion only do mild policy tweaks and a little bit of tinkering um, to try and basically refit and refuel to change their growth trajectory to catch up and do better or at least slow their decline. So we don't expect major changes to American foreign policy, but we do expect some internal reconfiguring of the armed forces and a lot of internal efforts to make the American economy stronger. Okay, and how is this affecting us in the, the international playing field? Um, the, the conventional wisdom is that uh, as states decline, it increases the amount of conflict. And in fact, it makes the, the declining power um, a good target for predators that can take advantage of them. And one of, I think, the most useful things of our study is it shows that this has it exactly backwards, that great power decline is one of the strongest causes of peace in international politics. And in fact, there's very little evidence that great powers in decline get taken advantage of. In fact, retrenchment allows them to change their resources and reallocate them, so it's very hard to exploit them. If there's any place that there's exploitation in a decline situation, it's by your allies, not your adversaries. But adversaries know that rather than defend a very brittle, wide perimeter, if you've got a flexible, um, tenacious defense where you're defending strong points uh, more strongly than you were in the past, they have uh, bigger fish to fry and better adversaries to pick on than declining powers who are still incredibly formidable. So um, I think that would be one of the major takeaway points is that retrenchment and decline, um, sorry, retrenchment as a response to decline is the most successful policy. States that do not retrench in their decline have met uh, less success than their retrenching counterparts and uh, retrenchment works. It is, it is the most cost-effective solution to decline uh, and does not end in spirals of hostility and regional instability. And weakness. And weakness. Talk, let's talk about retrenchment. What does that look like? Um, and does that even fit with, let's just call it the American ego? 
Um, well, uh, retrenchment for us uh, is a is a broad based term that means any sort of lowering of your foreign policy commitments and costs. So you can do that by sharing burdens with your allies, um, seeking out new allies, lowering your defense budget, spending your defense money different ways. And of course, there are lots of different ways to retrench that we don't consider, right? Like lowering your domestic spending so you could reallocate it towards civilian investment and other things that are outside of our circle of competence but are still within the realm of the feasible. Um, does it fit within the American ego? American foreign policy has waxed and wanes in so many different ways over history that um, there's certainly national ego all over the world, including here, but the United States has shown one of the most successful adaptations over time to different conditions of any great power. And no great power in the history of the world has gone from not a state to the sole superpower in two centuries. So I think the United States does what it needs to do to be successful, but it doesn't always do it as fast as we would like it to. Right. Well, that's encouraging um, to hear. You, you point out, you know, what, or you actually suggest what the United States should be doing in a situation like this is um, retrenchment strategies such as renouncing risky commitments and increasing our reliance on other states. Give me some example of that, uh, of those. What would be risky commitments we're not getting out of that we should be? Um, well, this is tricky. Um, because all commitments are risky and assessing those risks is difficult. Um, but for instance, we talk about uh, America's Asian commitments require more resources than they did in the past because of the rise of China. And so the United States should not be forward deployed in order to deal with those threats, but it should, uh, as they're tinkering with the language, somewhere between pivot and balance, uh, the rebalancing of the pivot to Asia is happening. And um, we were advocates of that uh, for some time we still are, but things like supporting uh, states next to Russia and their border disputes uh, with Russia is something we consider not, not worth the fight. Um, that there are more and less invasive ways to do that and we favor the less invasive ways. And America's footprint in the Middle East we think is, um, has been shrinking for some time, but will probably continue to shrink for good reason because those resources are more needed elsewhere. So what would be less invasive ways of supporting neighboring states and to, that are at risk near Russia? Well, for many years, the United States flirted with extending NATO membership to states like Georgia, and we think that would be foolish. Um, the United States does some covert support of the Ukraine, for instance, or some military support uh, of border states, and obviously our commitment to Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia is quite strong. Um, but that is not all states along the, the near abroad for Russia, and nor should it be. Hmm. So in, in your work, in your previous published pieces in, in journals, et cetera, you found with this historical examination that really roughly only 40% of these powers that have been in decline, who've employed strategies like this, like retrenchment, have rebounded. So does that mean we really have less than a 50-50 chance of regaining our previous um, status, if we even if we do uh, follow all these recommendations, um, it's a good question, Beth. And as usual, it's very dicey to go from history to the future. The fact that on average, forty percent of powers um, have recovered their rank doesn't mean the United States has forty percent chances. Um, but it's a good baseline. It's a good place to start, and. States, 40% of retrenching states 
recover their rank, 0% of non-retrenchant states um, have recovered their rank. So this is like going playing baseball, right? If you only bat 300, you get to go to the Hall of Fame. If you recover, if you bat 400 in the retrenchment game, uh, you, you do quite well. So I think that's an important baseline. It's a good expectation. The United States might not stay number one, um, but it's the best chance for the United States to exercise as much influence as possible. And you can see many successful states over history. Um, probably the most successful is Great Britain, who for more than a century slowly declined and played its cards very well and stayed on top for long periods of time or stayed towards the top. Uh, in a way that it wouldn't have if it had been more aggressive. And I think that would be a good model for the United States to follow. Yeah, the most recent model um, or example you, you mentioned is France. Why don't you <coughs> tell us about that situation? Mm -hmm. Well, we have several cases of the French in our data set. Um, and probably the most interesting in our mind is the, when they were undergoing a medium decline uh, in the late 19th century. And during that period from, say, uh, 1870 when they're beaten by Germany in the, in the uh, Franco-German War to um, 1900, they go from the nadir of being beaten by their neighbor to forming an alliance with one of the most powerful states in Europe and counterbalancing the German threat. And they make incredible strides in their military capability and their readiness. Um, they get much better weaponry, they get much better training, they're much better organized. They redo their railroad network to catch up to and sometimes surpass the Germans. And the Germans notice and they back off um, in some ways and then it pushes the rivalry to the, to the colonies. So when, when, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds as if they increase military spending there when you're just talking about this, but that's actually counter to retrenchment strategy. Right, so <clears throat> this is interesting because Military spending almost always goes up, and that's true in our data set. It goes up more slowly um, for retrenching states. So when I say that they slow their defense spending, they do. It seldom goes down. Right? In real terms, defense spending tends to stay up. And they change what they spend it on. They spend money differently than other great powers, um, who often have larger armies, but they also buy lots of expensive, fancy toys. Retrenching states tend to switch to more reserve. Uh, they have deep reserves and smaller standing armies, which cost a lot of money to just keep running. And they invest in technology, <coughs> excuse me, so that if there's an attack, they have a covering force that can allow their, their reserves to mobilize and strike back, but they use a defense in depth rather than a forward defense to deter their opponents and strike back. And they also try and use technology um, differently so they can invest in a lot of the last generation to get more of the last generation or a small number of very high potency weapons in ways that um, that rising powers or other great powers are less selective in their acquisitions. Okay, so with your contention and your recommendations, um, would you say, is anybody listening? <laughs> where, uh, where are we as a country with the, the people, the decision makers? Uh, one of the interesting things that came out researching this project is how typical the behaviors of declining great powers are, where they say one thing and they do another. And the United States is fitting that mold, where politicians will never say they're really declining, but things have changed and we ought to do things differently, like retrench. Um, and publics generally go along with that. Nobody likes defeatist rhetoric, and politicians are astute at recognizing that, but nobody likes losing 
And that's what happens when your mouth writes checks that your army can't cash. So they walk a, a fine line, but generally when we initially started this project, um, it was when the, the drawdown in Iraq and Afghanistan was being discussed, and we were told we were crazy, that the United States would never give up these commitments, that Iraq and Afghanistan were vital, and if we didn't fight them over there, we'd have to fight them over here, and, and so on and so forth. And you know, the United States had these traditional long-standing commitments, and it wasn't going to change its force structure in a significant way, or it wasn't going to be substantial. And we saw all these things happen, not because we caused them, just because the structural forces push states to learn quickly. And if they don't, they get punished. So we can see that the United States, for instance, in Libya said, look, we've had enough of high intervention. We're going to do this. We're going to lead from behind. Um, and when trouble broke out uh, with Russia and the Ukraine, the United States let Europe take the lead. And there are a number of other things where the United States just pulled back a little bit. And we anticipate that if America's relative power declines, you're going to see more of that because if you don't see more of that, there'll be some searing, painful experiences of what happens when you act as if you have more power than you do. So, right, that was one of your findings that um, powers that are in a decline are less likely to enter into disputes or escal escalate disputes. So have you determined that is intentional or is that coincidental of circumstances? Uh, we've determined it's intentional, that politicians don't really know, haven't figured out a lot of fancy ideas, but they are pretty good at figuring out when they're powerful and when they're not and what they can and can't do. Um, so we see that the, the militaries and the diplomats are informing their capitals regularly of, look, we have tested our strength or we can figure out yardsticks to measure ourselves and we're not measuring up as high as we used to. I know this is hard for you to hear. I know you might not like this. Don't say this from the rooftop. But you can't keep going on as if nothing has changed. The world is a different place and we need to do different things. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a very loaded question. Um, and you may have already answered it, but, you know, the reality is all this is spun about to the public, and, and we laugh about, well, here's the message, we have to spin it so it's palatable to the people of our country. But, you know, in your mind, what would it take to make America great again? You know, and, and you're not allowed to answer me in a tweet. Um, so. <laughs> uh, look, what it would take to make America great again um, is a recognition that the United States needs to change its game, as all athletes have to do over time. So this is in part reconfiguring our domestic politics in a way that makes us more efficient and leaner. And obviously the defense budget is something we focus on um, because it's in our, our circle of competence, but also things like um, you know, the, the other two thirds of the budget or three quarters of the budget uh, needs a top to bottom review about what Americans think is worth the money and what isn't. Within the, the foreign policy realm, which is what we do, the United States um, should continue to pivot to Asia and should lessen its footprint elsewhere, should intervene less around the world. Right? You can see a terrible correlation in the amount of money we spend on defense and the returns we've gotten from it. You don't spend money just to spend money. You have to get some return on investment. And it appears that we spend too much on our military. A number of studies have talked that sometimes military spending does increase um, your GDP and sometimes it does improve the civilian economy, but it's only under some circumstances under circumstances that we're no longer in. Um, so to me, to make America great again, this means retrenchment, and retrenchment is a, a delay strategy. 
um, to buy yourself time to reconfigure your society in a more competitive manner and overtake your opponent in the long uh, haul. And so it's not just about all the problems America has because we tend to focus on those. China has a ton of problems too. You know, lots of other states who are rising through the ranks have the problems of growth. Um, and the United States in a lot of ways is set up better than them already. And um, we'll see what happens over the long haul, but I would, if I had to choose whether I was in charge of China or the United States, I would much rather American problems than Chinese problems. Well, we are hearing um, messages from Donald Trump that he does want to focus on um, solving or attending to America's problem and sort of letting everyone else fend for themselves a little bit more. I mean, are you saying this is really, that's retrenchment in another, in another way to say it? Donald Trump is interesting because he says a lot of things and who knows which of them he means. Um, but look, let me be very clear. To make America great again, we should not have a Trump foreign policy. Uh, Trump foreign policy has been a lot of banging the shoe on the table and talking tough, but then he says everything to everybody and nobody knows who the messenger is from the United States. And a lot of it sounds aggressive, which is not consistent with the retrenchment story. Um, we do not want to pick fights willy-nilly. You do not want to threaten people unless you intend to back it up. You do not want to look like a madman. There's not good evidence that that is an effective bargaining strategy in international politics. But the overall thrust of the United States should pull back a little bit. Um, that is consistent, and we, that's, quite, that's one of the reasons he was elected, was that the United States had, in fact, been too focused and too involved and this liberal international idea that the United States needs to be everywhere, doing everything, um, I think people are tired of that because it wasn't working. Right. So with regard to, as you, this is what you do as uh, academics, you project and you look into the future. So let's look at our emerging relationship um, with China, the United States and China. And um, what do you see? And do we need to be concerned about military conflict. I think many people are. Do we need to be? Uh, many people are. I, you know, I, I wish that I was a futurist. I make no claims to that. Sometimes I'm asked to do dystopian political science fiction, and I, I oblige, um, but I probably am not very good at it. Uh, there will, of course, be conflicts between China and the United States. It, you know, great power relationships are always fraught. Our data suggests that if the United States is a normal declining power, there will be less of that than there otherwise would be. But that's not to say that it's not something to worry about or something to prepare for. The United States should absolutely be prepared for it. Um, but the idea that war is inevitable, that we're caught in a Thucydides trap, or the declining power and the rising power have the security dilemma that's going to spiral out of control, there's just not a lot of evidence for that. And do you foresee... I mean, the United States falling very far. I mean, I think it's hard for, again, the American ego such that it is, I think it's hard for Americans to envision falling down. Um, so maybe we're not number one forever, but beyond number two? I mean, people can't imagine that. Right. What, what do you think? Um, you know, the, the Herb Stein was an economist, I think, in the Nixon administration. He gets credit for having Stein's Law, which is everything that can't go on forever must stop, <laughs> which is obviously true. Very deep. Yeah, so <laughs> profound. But it's true. You know, like at some point, the United States won't be number one or two. Who knows? Everything has to end. 
the goal isn't that everything dies. It's that you have to play your cards as well as you can and learn from the past to do, you know, to, to do what you can to, to, to improve things. So can the United States live with it? Lots of empires have. Uh, you look around the world and imperial hangovers are rough. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But you don't see Austrians running around Vienna uh, kicking puppies because they're so angry that the Austro-Hungarian Empire doesn't exist. They have a perfectly fine life, and they seem to be quite content with it. Um, that said, I, I mean, Americans have no reason to be resigned for several generations, if then, right? Great power politics is unpredictable, but broadly, great powers from 100 years ago are still doing just fine now. And there's big surprises in store, I think, in the size and shape of countries and what it means to be an empire. Um, but, you know, my great-grandchildren are probably still going to live in the United States and it's probably still going to be a very powerful country. And I think we just came up with the next title for your for another book, Empir Empirical Hangovers. <laughs> That's the best one I've heard in a while. Um, well, let's, you know, now that... Um, You've been studying this for quite a long time, and, and you do have your, your new book uh, about to be published. Where do you look next? What are you going to be continuing to, to follow and study and, and analyze? Um, well, there's a couple of projects in the works, but one at a time, the next project Paul and I are going to do is trying to see the other side of the coin and look at rising powers. So this book was about declining powers and what they do, and we took a little peek at how rising, uh, rising powers behave, and it turns out it was not what we expected at all which is the ideal result you want as a scientist, is that ocular trauma of what? So we're going to go and try and come up with a more general pattern of how rising and declining happens at the same time. And what about people on the sidelines, right? How, what are the interactions between risers, decliners, and those that are neither? And that will be our next project. Is it, is it a good extrapolation, though, to examine things from um, two centuries ago to the 21st century? I mean, certainly... We're not comparing apples to apples. Yeah. This is true of almost all science. So, uh, for instance, a bunch of our knowledge about how people get pregnant is based on 17th century French provincial data. Um, it's got all, all data has all sorts of flaws. And yet, we use the best available things to come up with the most leverage we can get on, on issues. What you hope to do is figure out what would bias your results and then talk about, look, this is the general pattern over time, and here's how things have changed over time. So going forward, what should we be on the lookout for? And in our book, we talk about, look, since 1870, a lot of things have changed in the world. Um, things like nuclear weapons, things like globalization, uh, things like international organizations, the proliferation of democracy. And yet, um, all those things should make retrenchment easier, not harder. So when you look at our data set, these are the hard cases when retrenchment should have been the most difficult, uh, when there should have been the most incentives to lash out, and yet they didn't. So we think that that makes our, our findings even stronger going forward than backward. You're making a lot of assumptions about um, human behavior, though, and I guess state behavior. Um, because let's all face it, these decisions are being made by human beings. Mm -hmm. So you're you're you're... <laughs> it's heroic, you might think, but when we, when we do talk in the book, we do not make strong rationality assumptions. We think human beings are only sort of kind of reasonable. And in some sense, human beings are basically like the earth. They have this sort of small crust of sanity with a huge molten core of crazy. 
Um, we just think that human beings, as irrational as they are, have to feign rationality to stay on top in a competitive realm. And when they can't feign rationality, they get beat by the reality stick by people who are better at feigning rationality. So we have a very minimal definition of what's reasonable, but you can see that politicians generally follow that. Now, there are exceptions, and that's one of the other useful things, is that once you figure out how the average state behaves, you can see deviations of how good or bad their statecraft was. But a lot of times people have looked at this in the past and they have a good bad outcome or a bad outcome and they say, well, that was a good decision or that was a bad decision. Sometimes you make the right decision and bad things happen anyway and vice versa. So you want to get inside and see broadly what's your baseline expectation and how do people deviate from that. Right. It's not always black and white. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted I want to jump to another field of study that you've you've examined, which you know, talking about human behavior, it, it sort of leads right into that. But you you a few years ago you published another book called American Conspiracies. Conspiracies. Um, tell me a little bit about how conspiracies and have have contributed to, uh, you know, our changing foreign policy and our changing domestic policy. Um, well, I guess maybe the the broader point I want to make is that conspiracy theories, I mean, when we did this, people are like, is that a serious topic? And then it turned out to be a serious topic. Um, now I, we no longer have to convince anybody of this. But throughout history, um, conspiracy theories were actually an important part of foreign policy. Uh, that a lot of things, for instance, the American Declaration of Independence starts out with this beautiful opening and then it unfolds into a conspiracy theory that King George is out to enslave the Americans. Um, Conspiracy theories can have major foreign policy results. Obviously, the stab in the back myth in Germany helped create Hitler and make him who he was. And Joseph Stalin was not shy about expressing his paranoia. Um, in the United States, Richard Nixon is the uh, obviously another famous case of how conspiracy theories, people who believe in conspiracy theories often commit. Uh, they do not respect the rules because they think the rules are, are rigged and they are more prone to... to do uh, conspiracies themselves. And they, I mean, I, there's probably an element of desperation, and they, so they feel a bit of the desperate times call for de desperate actions. So, I mean, would you say that's true? Would that be the clearest uh, example that we know about, I guess, in, is the Nixon era? Um, well, one of the findings of, of that book was that um, um, we think that there are these times, these high water marks of conspiracy theories. And it turns out that if you do historical data, um, it's not when we think it, it's generally we overpredict. The conspiracy theorizing is actually fairly constant in American history, and people tend to think whatever era they're living in is the high water mark. Um, so it's actually the 1890s that we had a big spike in conspiracy theorizing relative to normal periods, and then the 1950s with McCarthy. Um, and it's not actually the 70s. There's not a big uptick in the 70s. There's a lot of it going on. Um, we also, through a number of surveys and other devices, found that people array themselves on a conspiracy dimension, that they're more or less prone to seeing the world in conspiracy theory terms, but that's countervailed by their political allegiance. So people, when something comes up uh, that has a political valence for Democrats, the Democrats that are high on the conspiracy dimension, that's going to freak them out, but only on the left side of the spectrum, and the mirror image of that happens on the right. So if you think Obama was born in Kenya as a Muslim, um, you probably vote Republican, right? Not many uh, Democrats 
uh, cottoned on to that one. Whereas uh, if you think 9-11 was an inside job, probably vote Democrat. And you didn't, almost nobody on the right believed that. But what was interesting was both the birther and the truther movements that Obama was born in Kenya and 9-11 was an inside job garnered roughly 27 or 28% of the public support, but they were a different 27 or 28%. So the left always wants to think the right is a bunch of crazies, and the right always wants the left a bunch of crazies, but we're actually crazy in equal measure. That's a pretty big percentage, though, even, of the population. I mean, I would think bigger than people would suspect. Yeah. Yeah. And it does go up and down over time. I mean, one of the reassuring things is that the conspiracy theories, very few conspiracy theories become popular. In some sense, they're kind of like germs. They die all the time. They're thrown up and they die all the time. Um, the conspiracy theories that die are much, so the, we tend to measure conspiracy theories by looking at the popular ones. But that's sort of like measuring the stock market by just looking at Google. Um, you want a really broad uh, index of, of conspiracy theories to look at. And when you look at that, actually, the big ones are not very good indicators of the, the overall trend. Um, but the big ones do tell you something about what's successful. And the Kennedy conspiracy theories are the most successful, and they actually have the most evidence that the U.S. government did not want a full inquiry of that because they were afraid that the Russians might accidentally have, you know, sort of just like Kevin Bacon might have had something to do with the assassination, so might <laughs> the Russians. And then they would be under pressure to escalate against the Soviet Union, and that would go someplace neither one. They didn't think the, the Soviets had did it, and they were right. The Soviets did not do it, as far as we know, did not have a hand in it. Um, however, they wanted to rush this through, and Americans figured this didn't smell right, and they were right. But over time, even though that's been a successful conspiracy theory, that's been going down over time. Um, because if there was evidence that there was something big afoot, like it would have been uncovered now, because it's hard to get large numbers of people to stay quiet in collusion on a secret. And it's hard to do big things unless you have more than a small number of people in on it. But ignorance can be bliss because with knowledge, you, you may have to take action. That's true. So, so you're teaching uh, foreign policy to uh, undergraduates this semester. Tell me what kinds of things um, the students are most interested in. And, and when you have these discussions, you know, what are their perspectives? Um, my experience has been that college students love current events. Um, and I don't blame them. They get to argue with their parents and tell their parents they're wrong because they know more about something than, than somebody that's told them they were wrong their whole life. Um, so whatever is in the papers is what tends to grab them. But I think one of the important things that um, teachers can do or professors at that point in their education is try and give them human memory, right? The history and the pattern recognition um, rather than, you know, like it's kind of like developing your taste by just listening to what's in the top 40 right now. Like there's all these other forms that have gone before and they recur and some of them are worth keeping in circulation and some of them you should learn from how bad they were. Um, so I think uh, what they're interested in current events, that, that's what they're into. What I hope for them to be interested in is something that resonates with them that isn't necessarily current events, but maybe current events in the future, right? I don't want them play soccer like they're a bunch of eight-year-olds and they just go to this big mob and try and kick the ball. I want them to go where the ball's going to be so they score goals. That's a very good comparison. Well, today we've been talking with Professor Joe Parent from the University of Notre Dame. His upcoming book is called Twilight of the Titans. Thank you for listening to our summer series from Notre Dame's International Security Center. 
And we invite you to subscribe to future podcasts. We actually have a series coming up called Students Talk Security. And these will be hosted by our International Security Studies students um, uh, here in the Political Science Department at Notre Dame. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. And please also follow us on Twitter at ND underscore ISC. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.